Amen. Good to see you this morning. Thank you. Normally I say worship team, and I guess that still applies, but thank you, Trio, uh, this morning. A little different if you've never been to Grace View before and this is your first Sunday. Thank you for joining us. Uh, but do please know that today is very different. Um, that's kind of the joining in the living room setting of our songs this morning as we sing Christmas carols. And that is a favorite thing to do for many this time of the year. Uh, join me, if you would, that great Christmas passage in the Bible. Would you go ahead and turn there? You're like, oh, where, where is it? Well, it's on your hand <laughs> There's a lot of great Christmas passages, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know that I'd ever really thought of the one we're going to look at, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I had had thought of it as a, as a potential Christmas passage, but this year it really seemed to kind of grab my attention. And I confess, I didn't know what I was really getting into when we started looking at this. Uh, we're going to cut into the third verse. It's going to be a, uh, a comma at the end. I really hate to do that, but to condense our thoughts uh, to just three, three, these three verses will keep us plenty busy this morning. And I think as, you, as we read this in just a moment, you'll say, uh-oh, we know Jeff, and look at all these phrases, and we could be in trouble. I don't think so. It should be a normal Sunday here. Um, but there's a lot in this text that we need to get into, and it is a great Christmas text. So, we are suspending our preaching on Matthew uh, as during these two weeks that we've looked at Christmas, last week and this week. And so this morning, we're kicking off three verses in a brand new book. And if you know me and my style, I really want to dig in and give you lots of background on what Hebrews is going to be about. But we're not doing a study of Hebrews. We're doing a study of these three verses. Yet, I am going to give you some brief background. You ready? Here we go. You're not getting off that easy. All right. The book of Hebrews, as the name implies, so here's how I want you to think, all right? And soon we'll be going into this in Matthew 24. There's going to be the destruction of the temple. And again, y'all know I do these timelines. That's the past. Here's the future. And we're different parts on this scale of time. So if we just kind of say that right here is A.D. 70, we know that the book of Hebrews, by its name, is written to a particular group of people. But we glean from it this morning. So we're going to glean from these truths. So the temple in Israel is going to be destroyed in A.D. 70. By all appearances, this book was written just that, okay, probably in the mid-60s. So as this is being written, they're a couple of years away from a rebellion is going to flare up in Israel, and the Romans have had enough, and they're going to come in and destroy Jerusalem and the temple and literally kill many, many, many Jews in Palestine. And we'll be going into that again in Matthew 24 and 25, I'm sure. But this particular book, written at that time, just before that, in the mid-60s, is written. Here's key. It's written to Jewish Christians. It, it's definitely written to all Hebrew people. But particularly the idea at this time is it's written, here, you got to get it, it's written to Jewish Christians who are being tempted. Their temptation is to go back to their original faith. What is their original faith? What would we call their original faith was what? What ism? Judaism. So here they're Jewish Christians. They're being tempted to go back. Some persecution is starting. Maybe there's less outward physical things. And man, what, what, all that activity at the temple is very appealing. But the writer is telling them. We don't know who this author is. He doesn't name them himself. But this writer is telling these Jewish Christians, don't go back to your original faith. Here's why. 
Judaism is still looking for the Messiah to come. As a Jewish Christian, you know the Messiah has come. You know who he is. They're looking for him. You know who he is. Yes, that may look great and all that activity, all the sacrifices that are taking place down at the temple. You miss that perhaps. But as a Christian, you know that Jesus' death on the cross is a once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need to offer any more sacrifices. And, of course, the Lord will bring an end to those sacrifices in A.D. 70. What the author is saying is, hey, Jewish Christian, don't go back to your original faith because what you have is supreme. What you have is better than what you had before. And with that in mind, really put yourself in that setting. Go back. You are one of these Jewish Christians, and you're tempted to go back, but you get this letter, and all we have time for this morning is the first three verses. Let's notice what he said. Why would I not go back? The writer writes, God's Word. You're a Jewish Christian. You're reading this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke to our fathers. This author is a Jewish Christian. He's telling those people, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Did you catch it? Hey, Israel, this is what makes us so distinct in all the world. He's telling his audience, God, long ago, by many ways and many different times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And I know you love that. And that's your roots, and that's a lot of your identity. Verse 2, but... In these last days, the author sees himself as being in the last days. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us. So I know you're thinking, but God spoke to our fathers, our forefathers, through the prophets. Yes, he did. God spoke to them through the prophets. But God has spoken to us. How? By his son. That's better. God spoke to them through the prophets, but God has spoken to us by His Son. Why is that a big deal? Because keep reading. His Son, whom He, God, appointed the heir of all things. That's the one who came and spoke to us. Why is this so important? Because the Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, is the one through whom He also created the world. This is the one that God sent to us. Who is this person? Why is this so superior and so great? Verse number 3. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He's the exact imprint, not a marred imprint, not a smeared and smudged imprint of the nature of God. His Son that He sent here to speak to us is the exact imprint of God's nature and He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And oh, by the way, after making purification for sins, after making purification for sin, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Read it one more time. Let's read it quickly all the way through without the breaks. You're a a Jewish Christian, 65 AD, you hear this. You want to go back? No, 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 don't go back. Why? Because long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Don't go back. Don't go back. Do you see it? This is a Christmas message. This has to do with the one all the way through. So I'm going to go ahead and confess to you, this message is almost entirely teaching. Any preaching will pretty much happen at the end. Heads bowed, eyes closed, and we'll apply some of these things. So just get ready. It's going to be doctrinal, but there's so much in this that we just need to learn. Who is this one that we've been thinking of the last few days surrounding Christmas? I want you to notice two things out of the text, another confession. I am reversing the order. I don't even know why. It's kind of, I want to finish with a certain thought, and the thought is Jesus, God's supreme revelation. That's the main thought I want to give you. Remember last week, if you were here, I said there's a main reason that God sent his son. That'll be referenced in this, but I said there's also another reason that God sent his son at Christmas, and that's kind of our main focus this morning, though the primary will also be in it. Two thoughts, and I'm doing them in the reverse order that most every other preacher would do, and I'm not even 100% why, but I just feel like that. So here's the two thoughts. Number one. What we see in this text is that Jesus is the executor of God's will. That's what's in this text. Jesus, this one we're celebrating at Christmas, he is the executor of God's will. So he's saying, and some of you already know this because you've been through the process of carrying out a will and seeing a will fulfilled after a death. But if you don't know what that term means, an executor is someone who carries out the wishes of another person. Watch. Here's a person has a will and a desire. An executor says, I am, I am going to make your will and desire come true. Jesus is the executor, the one who makes the will of God come true. Our text gives us at least three ways Jesus does that. Number one, you saw it back in verse number two. He created the world. Look again at verse two. Hey, verse 1 is great, the writer writes, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created. He, who, so who created the world? Through whom he created the world. So who created the world? You say, God created, yes. But who created the world? Well, the son created the world. Yes. So which is it? God created the world through his son. That's what we're being taught in our text. Write this down. What this means for us is that virgin-born, Holy Spirit baby born in Bethlehem is none other than the very creator of the world. But the key here is the word world is not just this idea of the cosmos and all the physical things. Yes, he made that and that and that and you, your physical body. It means more than just the physical. It means he created the world, the ages and the ages and ages and ages. He created all of the ages. What that means is all the physical things, but he created the entire spirit world. See, you're in the physical world and you're in the spirit world. You have a body, you have a soul and a spirit, and there's a whole spirit world, a whole physical world. He created time and space. He created the ages. God did through his son. How does he do it? I think, again, what bears perfect testimony with the rest of scripture is seen in verse number three how he does what he does i'm getting ready to make a point i want you to really get it we need to remember this he verse three he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds we'll talk about that in a second he upholds the universe by the word of his power so how did god 
through his son, create the world, the worlds, the ages, the universe. How did he do it? Merely by speaking. Literally, we saw this in the book of Genesis. And God said, there's light. And God said, there's, there's, there's earth and the planets and the stars. And God said, and there's vegetation. And we're going to separate the waters above and the waters below. And the land's going to come. And animals and all of everything God said. Not in your handout, but I want you to make a mental note. When God wants to accomplish something, when God accomplishes his work, he does it by his word. If you need to look into that more, go read John 1. The word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. By him all things were made and without him was not anything made that was made. The word made everything. When God does his work, he uses his word and the word became flesh in this baby born in Bethlehem. So the word is the executor of what God wants. God wants something. The word, the son, who became flesh, we call him Jesus, he makes it all happen. Wish we had time, and I wish I had the knowledge, and much more knowledge than I have, and there are some that are very gifted at this. Louis Giglio in Atlanta is very gifted at this. But we don't have time to just park here, but I want to just... Taste it. MacArthur offers some stats, and I'm going to borrow those. Think about our sun for a moment, S-U-N, our sun in the middle of our solar system. The best guess is that our sun, if we were to open it up and it were empty, its size, and we could take the earth and replicate the earth over and over and over, that you could put 1.2 million earths inside the sun. I find that astounding. Our sun is so large, I think the planet we're on is really big. I've hardly covered any of it. I've covered some. I've got a long way to go. I haven't been all the way around this thing. It's huge to me. You could put 1.2 million of our Earths inside the sun, but it still wouldn't be full because there would be all this other space. And so you have enough room inside of that for 4.3 million of our moons to also go with the 1.2 Earths inside of our sun. Our sun is 93 million miles away. We can't calculate that. We don't, we don't under, you're never going to go 93 million miles in your life, but our sun right now is 93 million miles away. Sounds like a long ways away. Millions of miles, 93 millions of miles. Yeah, but in space terms, that's not really that far away. That's a long way to you and I. Think about our farthest out planet. They tell us that Pluto is 2.7, not million miles away, 2.7 billion miles away. That means if light were to leave and head toward Pluto, traveling 186,000 miles per second, it's going to take it four hours to get to that 2.7 million, billion miles away. Pluto. But let's expand our scope out a little bit further because the star that we call the North Star, it's not billions of miles away, and certainly not millions of miles away. It's 400 trillion miles away. So the North Star, you get out there, which one out that one out there? Oh, there's the North Star. 400 trillion miles away. That's pretty far, I guess. But you've got to go a little further because they tell us that there's this star called Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is a mere 880 quadrillion miles away. 880 quadrillion. And you say, remind me quadrillion. I'm a little rusty. I took math back in high school about 48 years ago. Right. Quadrillion is 880 followed by 15 zeros. 
Not 880, not 880,000, not 880 million, not 880 billion, not 880 trillion, 880 quadrillion. Please understand, I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers, watch. If you have 999 trillion, 999 billion, 999 million, 999,999, add one more to that number, you have one quadrillion. Beetlejuice is 880 quadrillion miles away. If you could go and get there, its diameter, not its circumference, its diameter is 250 million miles across. What that means is it's bigger across than our whole orbit around the earth. And if you were to go beyond that, what they're learning is things they thought were stars, those aren't stars. Oh, that's a star. No, it's not a star. Really focus in. Wait, it's all these other, that's a galaxy. And then that galaxy has millions and millions and millions of other stars. From our angle, we think it's one. And there's millions of these. Who made all this? A little baby born in a manger spoke it all into existence. Don't go back to what they're offering. you got something way better. You've got it, the goods. You have Jesus. He's the executor of God's will. Number two, we see this in verse three. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why would we not go back? Because the one we're celebrating at Christmas upholds the word of his power. So when Jesus, God, through his son, guys, when he created the universe, he did it with wondrous design, tremendous wisdom. Please understand, there is great order in our universe. Great order. The scientists, some, many of which try to refute the word of God, they rely on certain things occurring faithfully. I have a phone app that tells me what the weather is. So tonight the sun is supposed to set at 527 here. How do they know that already? Because they know this is what, they've got it down to the second what's taking place. If you're taking notes, write this thought. Though our universe has great order and great design, Get it? Though when Jesus created the universe, he did so with certain physical laws and dynamics in place, systems we could say, cycles, those are in place. But what's being taught to us in verse 3, we need to have this in our mind, that actually behind those systems and dynamics and laws and cycles is literally God's Son by the word of his power, upholding it, keeping it all together. He didn't just create it and leave it alone. He has created it, and he is holding it all together by the word of his power. That's the one we're celebrating at Christmas. What I'm saying, guys, is if he ever just momentarily relaxed and did not hold together those systems and laws and dynamics... We would die very quickly. Think of this. If he just relaxed gravity for a little while, you and all the objects on the earth would start lifting from the earth and how far we would go, who knows. Our world would get out of its orbit and it would be a disaster. We would die very quickly. Our earth is on a 23-degree tilt. If he ever relaxed so that it gets on a 22-degree tilt or a 24-degree tilt, it doesn't take long till life as we know it has stopped. 
We're 93 million miles away from the sun. We're not 94 million miles away or 92 million miles away because if that were the case, life on earth would cease. If he were to relax, he's holding it all together. If our moon were not held at the exact distance that it is right now and has been for thousands of years, then our tides would get totally out of whack and us being so close to the coast as we are only three hours away, we would die tonight if the moon were not the distance that it is from us. Something is holding the atmospheric gases in the exact balance that it is to sustain life and to keep just any random objects coming through our atmosphere and destroying the earth. And those will be lifted according to the book of Revelation and things will be allowed to get into our earth when the time comes. But for now, he's holding it all together. He's the executor of God's will. Write this down. Wearsby gave a thought and I thought it was... Enlightening to me, he pointed out that the word upholds in verse number 3 actually means, you say, yeah, he's holding it together, but it's more than that. Watch. It means to carry from one place to another. The one who has not just created the universe and holding it together, but is taking the universe from one place to another was born as a little baby 2,000 years ago, and his name is Jesus. What does that mean? Caring, upholding. Write this down. Wearsby writes, quote, He, Jesus, is the God of creation and the God of providence. He, I'll say it again. He's, Jesus is the God of creation and the God of providence. Providence is the ordering of things a certain way that Jesus has them happening. Why? He writes, He's the God of creation and the God of providence who guides this universe to its divinely ordained destination. And everything's on track. That's what this means. He's upholding it all by the word of his power. Jesus is the executor of God's will. The Father wills it. Jesus makes it happen. Did you already see the third thing that I'm going to hit on? Did you see it in the text? Normally, we preachers would put this last. I'm going to touch on it now. Look at verse 3 again one more time. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he created the world. He upholds the universe. And then we have this phrase. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins. If you've heard this 1,000 times, I want you to hear it fresh. Your sins and mine made us God's enemies. Your sin and mine made us God's enemy. You were born in sin. You were born an enemy of God. You were born loving what he hates. You have, since you've been living on earth, you have many, many thousands of times done things unknowingly and knowingly that you know that God says not to do and your own conscience says don't do it. You have done that over and over and you were born and have lived as an enemy of God. And what we learn is that this one now sits at the right hand of the majesty. That means he's a king. Now hear me. Powerful kings destroy their enemies. Powerful kings just destroy their enemies. But the Christmas message is that the most powerful king, the king of all the other kings, did not come to earth to destroy his people. He came to earth to save his enemies. That's astounding. And here's what's even more astounding. How did he choose to save his enemies? By literally shedding his blood 
in obedience to the laws of God because the law of God, God made laws that demanded for sin to be purified, blood must be shed. Blood must be involved because sin has to have a price. God can't just wave his arm and say, okay, sins have been purified. No, God's son became flesh to purify us from our sins. As I said last week, this is the primary reason. If you're finished writing that note, flip just a few pages forward. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. And the author will go into what we're talking about here in great detail that we don't have time this morning. Why blood? Why did he do it that way? You're in Hebrews 9. In a moment, I'm going to read verse 22. But here's what I want you to see. Kind of glance at the verses before. The writer of Hebrews says that when Moses received the law... And they built the tabernacle, that was first, that was the primary. The tabernacle is really greater than the temple. So they built the tabernacle. And what the Bible teaches is that Moses took blood and some water, so this hyssop branch, this type of branch with lots of leaves, and they dipped it in blood, and they actually sprinkled blood on the covenant, the book of the covenant, and they sprinkled blood on the people, and they sprinkled blood on the tent of the tabernacle, and all the utensils and the vessels that would be used in serving God, they sprinkled blood on those. Why? What's the point? Verse 22, Hebrews 9, 22. Indeed, under the law, under God's law, almost everything is purified with blood. If something is contaminated, if this podium here were to be contaminated with dead animal or, or some liquids coming from a dead animal or someone who's committed great sin touches this, it now needs to be purified. What would they do? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. But notice the last phrase. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's revisit our main thought last week. Why did God's Son become a human being and still remain God's Son and God Himself? Why did He do that? Remember how we said it last week? He became a man so that He could do what He could not do otherwise, which was what? Y'all remember? Three letters. He could die. Why? Two things I want you to understand about God, and I'm moving on. God cannot die. But God wants sins to be purified, and he wants it to be removed. And so he became a human being because God can't die, but a man can die. God became a man, Jesus Christ. The other thing about God, God has no flesh and blood. But a man has flesh and blood, and so God just didn't become a man and drown. God became a man so that taking on flesh and blood, he could shed his blood intentionally to purify sins. Back to chapter 1 quickly. Chapter 1, look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sin. Okay, hang on, wait. I read this, and I feel comfortable saying what I'm about to say. After making purification for sins does not mean Jesus has purified all sins. If it means Jesus has purified all sins that's ever committed, then that would mean no one is in hell and no one is condemned to hell. There's no eternal torment. You say, then what does this mean in verse 3? Here's what it says. After making purification for sins, what that means is that what happened when Christ came to earth and died on the cross is that he did everything that was needed to make purification for sins available to every person who will put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. He will save them. Their sins will have been purified. He's done everything needed. 
What did he do after he did all of that? Notice what the text says. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He just sat down. Those of you who studied the Old Testament, help me out. There's all these pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and the temple. What is there not? What kind of furniture is not in the tabernacle or temple? There are no chairs. There's no seats. I know there's this thing called the mercy seat, but believe me, that's not for any human being to sit on. Right? Talk about that another day. It's not a seat like you're sitting in right now. Why are there no chairs? Man, we got all these things. We got lights and tables and got an altar and we got a, 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 this bowl here with, full of water for washing hands and all that. We burn things over there, burn the animal. Why do we have all this? No chairs. Again, if you're taking notes, there were no chairs or seats in the tabernacle or later on in the temple because the sacrificial work of Israel's priests was never finished. It was never done. There was always more offering to make. They made offerings in the morning and offerings in the evening. And this was the next day. And then on the Sabbath days, they made offerings in the morning and offerings in the evening. And they made offerings between. The offerings, these people weren't sitting around twiddling their thumbs. These priests were busy. There's no time to sit. 365 days a year, you don't take the Sabbath day off. That one goes ahead. Jesus used that as a point to show that they do continue. I better not chase that rabbit. I'll get, that'll be a real bad hole to get down in. Here's the point. The priest never sat down. But when Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, would develop this idea how he is a greater high priest than all of the Levitical priests, because when he did his offering of himself on the cross, he sits down. What does that signify? That's a whole message unto itself. The sitting down of Christ here at the right hand of the majesty. Yes, it means he's honored at the right hand of God. Yes, it means that he intercedes for us at the right hand of God according to Romans chapter 8, verse number 34. But I want you to write these two thoughts down. He sat down because unlike the earthly priests, his sacrifice and his work to purify sins is done. Literally, when Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. What he means is not, I'm finished. What he means is, my work to purify sins is finished. Now what are you going to do? Oh, he didn't go to Disney World. Guess what he did? I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father and rest, because his work is done. But the other thing is, he sits at the right hand of the Father to show that he reigns and rules Right now, at the right hand of the majesty on high, he rules and reigns over all, th- all things in heaven, all things in earth. That's what I'm trying to tell you. When God wants something, Jesus causes it to happen. It's all through our text. God wanted a universe, Jesus made it happen. God wants that universe to work perfectly, like literally every single thing. You, you, ladies and gentlemen, you, you watching online, all of you, the chair you're sitting in, everything has been made to fulfill a very specific purpose in the great plan of God. Jesus holds it all together, keeps it completely on track. God God the Father wants sins to be paid for and removed. Jesus makes it happen. He's the executor of God's will. Guys, it's actually, and last thing I'm going to say here, we're going to the second point. This affects how you pray. When you pray, here's what's actually happening, according to John 14. You pray to God the Father in the name and the authority and the power of Jesus, but what you're doing is you're praying and asking God, would you align my request with your will? Because when my request matches your will, Jesus is going to make it happen. Because Jesus is the executor 
of God's will. Number two. The second thought that is very clear and not trying to be alliterated. I don't really fall in love with alliteration. I think it's usually overdone. But Jesus is the expression of God's character. He's the expression. He's the perfect expression. That's what's brought out to us in our text today. That's what I want to try to, us to get a hold of. Why is Christmas important? Yes, he came to purify our sins. But Jesus also, God's son, became a human being to express to us the very character of God fully, perfectly. How? Why is he the full, perfect expression of God's character? Notice verse number three gives us three things, uh, two things. Notice verse number three, look at it. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance. What does that make you think of? There's something radiating, emanating, rays. There are rays. There's, there are rays emanating. That makes you think of something that has brightness to it. It makes us think of the sun, S-U-N. And that's what he's really talking about. What, what the author is saying is that God's Son, S-O-N, is kind of like... He is to the Father what rays, R-A-Y-S, are from the S-U-N. It is emanate. What he, write this down. What he's saying is that God's Son is the very radiance of God's glory. He is not the reflection of God's glory. Uh, we've talked recently about lights here, and if you're watching online, those of you, are, you're probably seeing this. If, if, a, if you look at this a certain way, it can look like, in a way that this podium, because it's metal, is actually emanating some light. As the singers sing each week, there are times that it can actually look like they're emanating light. We're, they're not emanating light. We're merely reflecting light. Light is being picked up by us, bounced back to you, and your eye is perceiving. We're a reflection. That is not what Christ is. Jesus Christ is not the reflection of God's glory. When Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus... He sees the glorified, resurrected Christ. He just catches a glimpse of him, and he's totally blinded because what he's seeing is the radiance of the glory of God. And God, in his mercy, healed him of that blindness three days later. But he saw the resurrected Christ, and it threw him to the ground because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. MacArthur words it this way, last quote from him. He says, quote, now I'm going to use the word S-U-N here, son, watch. He says, just as the Son was never without, think, 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 just as the Son was never without and cannot be separated from its brightness, so you have the Son and you have brightness, the Son and its brightness, he says, just as the Son was never without its brightness, cannot be separated from its brightness, so God was never without and cannot be separated from the glory of Christ. That's how he wrote it. I kind of think he wrote it a little backward because I think the point of the text is, I'm going to change it. Just as the sun, S-U-N, was never without and cannot be separated from its brightness, so God, so, I'm sorry, so Christ was never without and cannot be separated from the glory of God. Further, he writes this. So here's the key part. This is going to get just a touch theological and at first you may bristle. Hang on. So here's the idea. God's glory and Jesus have never been separated anything any more than the sun has been separated from its brightness. Yet he writes, yet the brightness of the sun 
is not the sun, S-U-N. Did you just catch that? The brightness of the sun is actually not the sun. So there's the sun, and then there's the brightness of the sun. He's saying they're not technically the exact same thing, and he's right. He says the brightness of the sun is not the sun, neither is Christ God in that sense. What he means is Christ is not God the Father. He's the radiance. He's the radiant glory of the Father, but he's not God in that sense. He's not the Father. But he continues writing, he is fully, Jesus the Christ is fully and absolutely God, yet he is a distinct person. He's the radiance of the glory of God. There is God the Father, and Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God. And if you're sitting there going, I don't know that I still get it. Right? Great, join the club. Me neither. Jesus is, they've never been separated. They're so bound. They're one, Jesus says, and yet they are distinct persons. The Son is not the Father. But you can't separate the two. Secondly, watch what he writes in verse 3. Jesus is the perfect, full expression of God's character. Why? Because he's the exact imprint of his nature. What does this mean? Write this thought. By using the phrase, the exact imprint in verse number 3 means, so here it is, it's the impression that a seal, S-E-A-L, a seal or a stamp, it's the impression that a seal makes on wax. That's the idea. What he's saying is Jesus is to God the exact impression that a seal would make in wax Jesus is like that to God. But again, as I said earlier, it's not a smeared, oh, man, that's not a very clear, I can kind of get the basic idea. It's a little smeared, kind of twisted it when you put it. No, there's the wax, and there's the seal, and it's sharp and crisp. I mean, it's exact. Barclay words it this way. Barclay writes, just as if you look at the impression, you look at the impression, you see exactly what the seal which made it is like. If you can look at the impression that's made in the wax, I can tell what the seal is. I don't have to see the seal. The seal's on the bottom of something. I can't see it, but I see the impression. He writes the following. Just as if you look at the impression, you see exactly what the seal which made it is like. So if you look at Jesus, you see exactly what God is like. Because he's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. You know what that reminded me of? That reminded me of this verse. We won't go into the whole text. Last year at this time, I was preaching in Philippians 2. And my mind went back to this, and I had to read it again to be reminded. And we're not going, because this was a really deep section, I thought. Listen to verse 5 and 6 of Philippians 2. Just hear it. Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Watch. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Hear it again. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. One of our authors last year brought out how the word form... Literally, it was the word morphe. You remember how we contrasted the word morphe and schema? Morphe is the essence of something. It actually is that. It is always that. It is unalterably something. That's the word form that's used here. 
God's son who became Jesus. Jesus is in, was in eternity past before he became a man. He was literally in the exact form, essentially, innately, unalterably, unchangeably God. Now, the form, another different word that's used for form, that can change. I was born as a little baby. I became a little toddler. Then I was a little five or six-year-old. And then I was like a little preteen. And then I was a teenager. All along the way, I'm a human being, but I look different. as a, And it didn't get any better. Unfortunately, now that I'm 51, it's like all going downhill. But I'm still a human being. My schema is changing, but my morphe is essentially the same. I've always been a man. I will be a man. I'm a human being. Hear it one more time. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form, the morphe, the essential, unchangeable, innate, unalterable form of God. He is that. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, in eternity past, he never thought, over there is equality with God. And maybe one day, if I keep working, I'll get up and I'll be equal. With, no, no, no. And he didn't think equality with God, I've got it, but if I ever go to earth and become a human being, I'm going to lose it and I'll never get it back. No, no, no. He's not clutching it. He's not aspiring for it because he knows. He knows who he is. He knows he's God and he will never be anything other than God even when he becomes a man. He will still be God. Back to Hebrews. You're still in Hebrews. He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact imprint. Of his nature. He's the perfect expression of the Father. And that brings me down the home stretch where I want to kind of focus our thoughts the last few minutes this morning. Go back, if you would, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Let's go back to verse 1 and 2. Read it again. Long ago, he's writing to these Jews who are ready to quit, they're kind of thinking about going back to Judaism. Now, he's reminding them long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And he goes on to all the weight of that idea. God has spoken to us by his son. Last week, we saw that the primary reason that God became a man, an actual human being, is because God can't die. And God has no blood, but he became a man to shed his blood and to die to pay for our sin. But this morning, here's where I want to finish. Jesus came to reveal God to us. He came to really reveal. Here's the idea. God wants to be known. That's what you need to think about at Christmas. Not just Jesus dying on the cross. Why did, why did he come? Because Jesus is revealing the Father to us. He's able to do this because he's the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. But he came to reveal, secondarily, but it's a major reason. He came to reveal the Father. Why is it so important? Hear it. God is a spirit. God is a spirit. That means you can't see God. You can't feel God. Oh, he's right in front of you right now. Right now. God is in front of you, but you don't see him. You don't smell him. You can't taste him. You don't hear his movement. Again, you can't touch. For us to know anything about God, I mean, literally, we would live our whole life if he chose we would live in sin and die and wake up in hell, and we would not even know why it is happening. 
unless God, who is imperceivable to us because He's a spirit, if He does not enter our sphere of awareness and reveal Himself on purpose in ways to us that we can really understand. i got to be able to understand it. That's why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. And you know what our text says? God has revealed Himself. Look at verse 1. Many times, many ways. Let's start with the most foundational ways God has revealed Himself. It's in your note. We now know that God, who is a spirit, has revealed Himself to us in perceivable ways like creation. Creation, there's a reason it's so big. Why the 880 quadrillion miles away for that one? And there's many, many more. That one's relatively close. Why so big? Because God is really big. And he's trying to show you something about himself. Why all this order and design? Because God's trying to show you something about himself. Why why do things happen a certain way? That's called providence. We literally learn things about God. Write these down. From creation, from a conscience. We're born with a conscience knowing that God is God. Knowing that God cares about right and wrong and that we're going to be accountable. We know about God from conscience. God sent angels to the earth to tell people information about himself. Again, we watch providence, how things are unloaded. And we learn things about God. And yet, the key revelation of God is the special revelation of God that's being referred to in the first verse. It's scripture. So how has God revealed himself? Many ways. Many ways. Creation, conscience, angels, providence, scripture. Scripture is greater than all of those others because it is so specific and concise and it happened many times and in many ways. So the author is saying, God revealed himself many times. Here, here it is again. I know you're writing that note. Watch. Here we are. They don't know it, but the temple's about to be destroyed. They're just before that. And this author in the mid-60s is looking back many centuries earlier and saying that God revealed himself to our fathers many times and over many different ways. The many times refers to from 1500 B.C. down to about 400 B.C. So about 1100 years, God revealed himself many times and in many ways. What kind of ways? Ways that the prophets end up speaking and they end up writing and it comes out in all kind of various ways like law. I'm looking here to the Old Testament. It contains law. It contains historical narrative. It has poetry and wisdom sayings. It has dreams and visions and types and symbols. And it has prophecies many times, many different ways. And that is awesome and that is great that God has revealed himself. But, verse 2, but in these last days. I'll let you know another secret. It's probably going to come in handy in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew. The New Testament writers had a whole mindset that's being expressed here by the author of Hebrews. Here's the mindset. All of time, remember, Jesus created time. There's eternity past, so then there's creation. Starts time and space. All of time and space is put into two categories. Here's the two categories. The line of demarcation is... Christmas. He says, long ago, here he is in 65 AD, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days. So he's talking about, and he's going to talk about God speaking by his son. So there's all the time before Christmas, and then there's all the time after Christmas. 
what he's saying, he's expressing the whole attitude of all the New Testament writers is that time before Christmas is the time and the age of promise. There's these promises about this Messiah, this Christ. When he comes, he's going to do all these wonderful things. He's going to save people. He's going to set things straight. And he's going to provide and protect. And all the, this is the time of promise. Yeah, that's before Christmas. And then after Christmas is the time of fulfillment. But here's the key. The time of fulfillment has like the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and all the time that is in between, which we now know is at least 2,000 years. So here's the point. We are in the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. That's the attitude of the New Testament writers. Oh, there's pre-Christmas and all post-Christmas. This is the age of fulfillment. You live in the good time. Would you rather live in the time of promise what's coming or seeing the promises fulfilled? That's what the writer is saying. Quickly, here's our thought. Jesus came to reveal the Father. One more time, look at verse 1, because I want you to see the two triangles. There's two triangles. Do you see them? Here it comes. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God, here's the triangle, first one. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Do you see it? God spoke to the fathers. God spoke to the fathers. How? By the prophets. Here's how it happened. God is speaking to the fathers, but he does it by speaking to the prophets who speak to the fathers. So that when the prophets speak to the fathers, they're literally carrying the words of God. God speaks to the prophets, they speak to the fathers. Verse 2. But in these last days, he, here we go, here's our second triangle. God has spoken to a group that's called us. He has spoken to us by his son. He is speaking to us by His Son. The Son is speaking to us, and the Father is speaking through the Son to us. Who's the us? I think the us is certainly this audience. I think the us is anyone who's ever been exposed to the teaching of the New Testament. That is you. You live in a great time because God is speaking to us through His Son, not just the prophets. He's speaking to us through his son. Write this thought. Verse 1, you got the prophets to the fathers. Verse 2, you have the son to us. He's making a comparison. Write this down. The author is not in any way belittling the prophets. Oh, he's making fun of the prophets. Like they're not inspired, like they're not important. These Christians who think the Old Testament's not important. No, 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 no. Don't ever think that. He is not belittling the prophets. He's simply exalting Jesus as the greatest revelation of God. Jesus is God's greatest revelation. Why? Watch. The prophets' revelations were completely true. Completely. All this. Completely true. But the advantage of the New Testament through Christ is that it is more complete in its truth. So the prophet's completely true. Jesus' revelation of God as his son is more complete. So much so that we can say it this way accurately. you got to get this thought. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. 
You say, I don't know if I really like that. I don't really agree with that. I'm kind of tracking everything you've said until now, but that point I don't agree with. Okay. Go to John 14. Flip over to John 14. After you've written that note, John 14. And hopefully our voice lasts to this last home stretch. Here we go. John 14. Are you already there? There we go. I'm starting here a few pages. <clears throat> Some of you are like, yeah, it's on my phone. I'm able to. You want. Well, kind of pound it loud so I know you're doing it, all right? Anyway, John 14. This is the night that Jesus is being betrayed. He'll be on trial just in a couple of hours. I'm going to read a short passage. Here's the lead up. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm leaving. You can't come right now, but you'll come later. They're very disturbed. Where are you going? Peter even says, I'll come now. No, you won't. I'll go anywhere. Will you really? The rooster's going to crow in the morning, and by then you'll deny me three times. And he's thinking, I will not. I'll never do it. Guys, I'm leaving where I'm going. You can't come now. You'll come later. And then in chapter 14, here's what he says. You know the way to where I'm going. Follow, track. Oh, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says, again, I'm paraphrasing. Time out, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't know where you're going. If we don't know where you're going, how do we know the way? We don't know where you're going or the way. Jesus says, yo, you do know the way. Y'all remember the classic verse? I am the way, Jesus says. I am the way and the truth and the life. Here's the hint. No one comes to the Father except through me. You do know the way. We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Because you know me, you know the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's a lot in that text. What he's saying is, I'm telling you where I'm going. I'm going to the Father. You're not ready to come there. You're going to come later, and you know the way because you know me. In fact, just before what you'll see on the screen is verse 7. Jesus tells his disciples, if you had known me, you would have... You would have known my father also. From now on, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So I put all that background for verse 8. You'll see it on the screen. Now look. Philip said to him, after verse 7, translation, again, my thoughts. Now, now you're talking. This sounds awesome. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. That's all. If you'll show us the Father, that's all we'll ever really want to see. Show us the Father. Verse 9 is one of those when I read, I always kind of check and like, was there something subtle happening more than what is obvious? I'm going to read it. You ready? Watch it with your eyes. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus is talking, technically. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Show us the Father! Have I been with you so long, you still don't know me? Who's talking there? Jesus. Is there anything more? Jesus, show us the Father! Philip. Have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Imagine Philip probably looked like one of those dogs that hear a whistle. 
Don't you know me? Oh. When you see Jesus, he is a distinct person, but they're so tightly bound and one in nature that to see Jesus is to see the Father, according to verse 7, 8, and 9. If that's not enough, let's finish in chapter 1. Finish in chapter 1 of John. John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3, the Word was in eternity passed with God and was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. We looked at that last week. Now look at verse 17. For the law, John, the apostle, writes, For the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses. And that's great and awesome. We need the law. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That sounds like Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now verse 18. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Because God is a spirit, no one, that's going to come up in John 4. Because God is a spirit, no one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen God. What about Moses? He didn't see God. He saw the hinder parts. He got to see behind the curtain just for a moment. Muted and veiled and smoky. No one has ever seen God. Then what do we know about him? The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's Hebrews 1 2. He has made him known. So what the author is telling us here matches with what is said over in Hebrews. It's this. Praise the Lord for the law of Moses. Praise the Lord for the law of Moses. The law of the Old Testament, you know what it does? It tells us so much about God. It tells us that God is really jealous for his glory. God really cares about his name. So hey, you, stop using God's name in vain. God cares about his name. God cares about life. You don't mistreat people. You don't kill people. You kill people, God says you have to die. God cares about the truth. Don't lie. God cares about property. If it isn't yours, don't you just assume you can use it or just take it. That's stealing. God cares about marriage vows. When you say, I will and I will not, then don't and do what you say you're going to do. Don't be an adulterer. God cares about these things. The Old Testament tells us that God says even coveting is sin. So we have all these wonderful things, and it is grace to tell us these things because ultimately we could put it all together, nice, concise, and we get this. The Old Testament, the law of Moses, and the prophets ultimately tell us that God is holy, completely separate from sin. He hates sin. He's told us what sin is. We still don't change. We sin intentionally and unintentionally. We have offended God's holiness, and we deserve to die, and we are under condemnation awaiting eternal judgment. Praise the Lord for the Old Testament. It doesn't fix our sin problem, but it sure exposes our sin problem. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. The law, God is holy. You are sinful. God is just. And you're going to be punished. You stand under condemnation. But praise the Lord for verse 18. Praise the Lord for Christmas. Because the Christmas message is, wait, wait, there's more. Oh, there's more. But isn't he really big? Oh, he's really big. He's way bigger than you ever thought. But isn't he mad about our sin? He is more furious and wrathful about your sin than you think he is. If you knew how much, you would stop sinning. God is wrathful about your sin. But Jesus came 
to reveal the Father, to let you know and you know, hey, there's more to the story. He's not just holy and just. He is extremely loving and extremely gracious. And the New Testament came, and that tells that part of the story fuller. Yes, it was there in the sacrificial system. There was grace, but nothing like what we see in the New Testament. One more time, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Holiness, justice, love, grace. None of these must be compromised. None of these must be emphasized at the expense of the others. You ever heard it? Here's what it sounds like. This is the person who emphasizes justice and holiness at the expense of love and grace. Here's what it sounds like. You did that sin. I saw you doing it. Don't you think you can ever go to heaven? It's some people telling themselves, I know what I've done. I know what I am. He can never forgive me because you're getting it out of balance. You're overemphasizing God's holiness and justice at the expense of his love and grace. Now, here's the other flip side. You ever, you've heard these people. They're on TV a lot. And they're on the, the big platforms and social media. God is loving. No one is going to go to hell. No one's in hell. No one's going to hell. God is a loving God. It says it right there in the Bible. God is love. And that's like their favorite passage. Along with judge not that you be not judged. That's their two favorite passages. And so they overemphasize love as if God's holiness and justice don't matter. Write your next to the last note. Here's Christmas. Jesus revealed that grace and truth are equal attributes of God. And that here's what's amazing part. You just need to go home and think on this second half of this note. Jesus came to reveal that God can remain holy and he can remain just while still bringing us to himself to live forever in heaven. How is that possible? He hates sin. Right, Jesus came to remove our sin. But God's justice demands that sin has to be paid for. Right, Jesus came to pay for our sin. It is possible for God to remain perfectly holy, completely just, and still bring us to live with him forever in heaven. So my last thoughts are these. Long ago, hey, Jewish person about to go back. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But here's what he's saying. The prophets only got fragments of the truth. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son in a fuller way. Why? Why? Your last note is this. God sent his only son at Christmas because he wants to be known in a greater way with greater understanding. God wants to be known with great hey, grace for you. God wants to be known with greater understanding. Here's what that means. Please don't ever be content to slide into a large cathedral that looks impressive. Listen to the Bible being read in Latin. Improbable Godly songs being sung in Latin with lots of stained glass and candles and robes and ceremonies and vessels of gold. Man, it looks really impressive. Do you understand a thing, what's going on? Not really, but it feels religious. And I like it. I just walk out, I just feel closer to God. Why? 
what was spoken? I don't know. It was in a whole other language. God wants to be known with greater understanding. That's why he sent his son. It's like Paul tells the Corinthians, I would rather speak to you in five words that you actually understand than in 10,000 words in another language that you don't understand. God wants you to really know him. Second part of your note. That's why Jesus is the greatest explanation of God because Jesus has the very mind of God. When Jesus speaks, that's what God would say. When Jesus does something, that's what God would do. So much so that we ultimately say this, the more you know Jesus, the better you know God. That's the message of Christmas. He came to take away your sin. But hey, Christian, once you've been born again, it is more than that. God sent his son because he wants you to know him as he really is. Do you know him? To that Jew, here's what God would say. Hey, Jesus is greater. He's not like Jesus is the greatest of the prophets. Oh, we got John the Baptist and Jesus at the top. That is not the message. We have Jesus is greater than all the prophets. We have the New Testament is greater than the Old Testament. I'm not saying anything negative about the Old Testament. It's awesome. New Testament is greater than. Let's just go ahead and say it. Christianity is greater than Judaism. And the only Christian who would ever try to go back and put himself under the law again is one who does not understand the supremacy of Jesus. You have the supreme one. Never go back. Christian, don't ever put yourself back under the law and the rigidness of that and the weight of it. You have love and grace, and you have the holy just one living inside you because he wants you to know him. That's the message of Christmas. Would you close your eyes just for a moment? Heads bowed just for a moment, eyes closed. I'm not going to keep you long. Jesus is the executor of God's will. What God wants, Jesus makes happen. And Jesus is the perfect expression of God's character. He, to look at Jesus is to look at God. To know Jesus better is to know God better. Just before we pray, I want to encourage, maybe it's just one person watching online, maybe it's one person sitting here this morning. I want you to listen. Please listen. If you're not yet a Christian, i got to say this. Are you listening? Jesus speaks with omnipotence. Jesus speaks with the almighty, omnipotent power of God. He spoke the worlds into existence. He upholds the universe right now by the word of his power. Here's what I want you to understand. When he speaks, mark it down. It is true and it is powerful and it will happen exactly as he says. So here's what you need to really make sure. When you hear the words that Jesus has said, do you respond to them as if they are true and as if they are powerful and will happen? If you've never done that, you must respond in faith to his words. You say, well, what words? Well, the New Testament is filled with his words, but I'm going to give you just three verses. Here's three. Jesus speaks with omnipotence and truth with purity and here's what he says in John 14 hear it Jesus says I, of him he says this I am the way and the truth and the life now hear it 
Jesus says, no one comes to the Father. That means no one goes to heaven. No one comes to the Father but through me, through him. Okay? So he's the only way. So anyone who, if there's a person who never hears about Jesus, they cannot go to heaven. They cannot go to heaven. That's why we give to missions. But there's more. So he's the only way. In John 3, verse 16, you know this, but really taste it. He says, God, here's him, omnipotent, truthful, it's going to happen, authoritative. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever, Jesus says this, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So now we know he's the only way to God. He's the only way to heaven. And now he says how to do it by believing in him. Putting your whole trust and faith in him and his promises. Have you ever done that? You should respond to his words as words that are spoken with truth and omnipotence. You say, well, hang on, preacher. I thought you said there was a third. Yeah, here's the third. It's also in John. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me, all the people He gives to me, shall come to me. They will come. I did this in 1979, June of 1979. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he who comes to me, I will not cast out. Put it together. The omnipotent, truthful God of the universe says, He's the only way to heaven. The way to get to heaven to the Father is by believing in Him. And He says, anyone who ever comes to Him and puts their faith in Him, He always saves them. He never drives anyone away, no matter what you've ever done. Will you this morning, right now, if you've never done it, I'm asking you right now, you talk to God, confess your sins to the Father, and say, Father, I am believing the words of Jesus because I hear them as powerful and authoritative and truthful. I am put, so go ahead, tell the Father right now, Father, I confess my sins to you. I am a sinner, but I believe the promise of Jesus. Tell God, God, I believe that Jesus' death was for me and that it is enough for all my sins. Tell Him right now, and then mean it. And God, I right now ask you to save me, and I receive your salvation. I ask you to save me, and I receive your salvation. If we can help you do that, or if you'd just like to share that you have done that, please let us know. Christians, let's get ready to pray. Before we do, here's the final thoughts to you. What the Christmas story means is that God wants to be known in a greater way. Do you want to know Him? You say, Jeff, I'm saved. Awesome. He wants you to know Him in a greater way. Do you want to know Him? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Christian, I'm going to ask you this. Do you value all the revelations of God? Do you value creation? Do you pay attention to providence? Do you listen to your conscience? Do you read the scriptures? Do you value the revelations of God? I ask that for this reason. And I mean all other revelations. Do you, Christian, value Jesus the most of all? I do. You say, Jeff, you just said scripture, right? I love the Bible. I love the Bible. I value Jesus more than the Bible. He is 
is greater than the Bible. The Bible is all about Him. The Bible is not God. Jesus is God. He's the Savior. He's the greatest revelation of God. Christian, I want to invite you right now. Right now as you're praying, you ought to thank God. God, I wouldn't mind going back and watching some of those old stories and see them develop and actually watch the Red Sea crossing. That would be awesome. But Father, I realize this morning, those are dark days. Those are not the good old days. We live in the best days because we live after Christmas. We live after Jesus Thank the Father right now. God, thank you that you have willed and Jesus has carried it out that I get to live on this side of Christmas and I get to see and know the revelation of Jesus revealing your full heart to me. Thank you, God, for the blessing of living in the time when I do. Now let's pray. God, we praise you this morning. God, you could have let me be born in Abraham's day and maybe seen some wonderful things. Moses' day and seen some wonderful things. Miraculous. David's day. Elijah's. But Lord, Father, we are blessed. I am blessed. These people are blessed. We have the completed Word of God in print. And we have the very revelation of Jesus that we get to study and you send your very Holy Spirit to live in us once we put our faith in Him. Father, we right now just collectively, I'm not the only one, God. We thank you for letting us, of all the times to be born and live, we live in a, the best time this world's ever seen. We're living in it right now. We praise you for that. And Lord, we acknowledge Jesus is not in a manger. And we acknowledge Jesus is not on a cross. We acknowledge that he's seated at the right hand of your majesty. And he is the creator, the sustainer, the savior, and our coming king. And we praise you and him in his name. Amen. Amen. And that's Christmas. Go forth in the power of that. Hey, if you haven't given to Lottie Moon Missions, it is not too late. You online, if you would like to give to the Lottie Moon missionary missions offering it is not too late please send that in this week if you get a chance have a great week thank you